Hello, my name is Forrest Coleman. I'm a postdoc in Stephen Smith's lab in the Department of Molecular and Cellular Physiology here at Stanford, and welcome to NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West. This week, our guest is Karel Saboda, group leader at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, Genelia Farms Research Campus. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Saboda. Well, thanks for having me. So could you tell us a little bit about your background, uh, where you grew up, and uh, when you think you decided you wanted to become a scientist? Well, you know, I was born in the Czech Republic, and then my uh, parents, uh, with, with, with myself and my siblings in tow, escaped to West Germany. That was in the early 70s. And then I came uh, to the United, United States essentially as a college student. And um, early on, I got interested in uh, physical sciences, math, stuff like that. I uh, graduated in physics from uh, Cornell University and then joined the physics department initially at Harvard as a graduate student. And, you know, slowly through friends and acquaintances, seminars, uh, got intrigued by what was going on in the uh, biology department. And uh, so then switched to the biophysics program there and learned biology while continuing to apply uh, physical thinking and biophysical methods to learn biology. Yeah, so you did your graduate work with Steve Block and Howard Berg uh, at Harvard in biophysics, as you mentioned, where you studied the movements and forces of the motor protein kinesin. And kinesin is a motor protein responsible in part for moving molecules and organelles around the cell along the microtubule network, including transport within dendrites and axons and neurons. And in 1993, you published a very influential paper where you developed a technique using optical trapping infrarotrometry to precisely measure the forces kinesin exerts as it steps its molecular motor. Could you first explain what an optical trap is? Yeah, so an optical trap is, is basically a sort of a molecular micrometer scale tractor beam. It allows one to use laser beam, highly focused light in a microscope to manipulate tiny dielectric particles. And this is actually based on some work done at Bell Labs uh, in the 80s by Art Ashkin and the now, again, current physics professor, Steve True. Uh, they figured out the underlying physics, and soon thereafter, these optical traps, optical tweezers, became very popular and powerful tools to manipulate biological systems on sort of a micrometer uh, length scale. And so the question that we posed uh, when I was a graduate student is one that not only required us to exert forces on tiny single molecules, so mechanoenzymes, so these molecular motors that you mentioned, but to also observe the movement of these, the, 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 the molecular scale movement of these motors. And that's how the optical traffic interferometer came together. It's really a combination of an interferometer that allows us to, allowed us to track the position changes or the movement of molecules over length scales of nanometers, and at the same time through the optical trap. The optical trap and the interferometer used the same laser light. That was a clever trick. Through the optical trap allowed us to exert piconewton level forces on, 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 on the molecule. So the basic questions were really about what are the elemental processes, how mechanical energy is produced from hydrolysis of individual ATP molecules. Do individual ATP molecules does that correspond to individual steps? Is that invariably so, even with applied force? The kinds of analysis that one 
what do to uh, really analyze the mechanic or really the thermodynamics of a motor, uh, we wanted to apply to really the mechanisms of individual mechanoenzymes, so individual mo molecular motors. And this early paper was sort of the first salvo in this science. And in fact, Steve Block's lab, uh, also now at Stanford, has, has pus pushed this technology further down to Angstrom levels, and they've really done fabulous things now in this domain since then. What's some of the most basic thing you learned about kinesin? Well, so for example, we learned what the step size of kinesin is, what the coupling roughly between ATP concentration and step rate is, what kind of forces kinesin can overcome, which directly leads to an estimate of efficiency, right, energy, force, distance. So the the fraction of the uh, chemical energy released from ATP hydrolysis that is converted to mechanical force um, and so on and so forth. So which of those results was the most surprising to you? At that time, the most surprising finding was the giant size of the kinesin step. Kinesin is a motor that is on the order, the molecule, the the essential domain of kinesin is just kind of two globular heads that are both on the order of four or five nanometers, yet the dimer moves with eight nanometer steps. That was quite yeah. surprising. And in fact, the news and views that accompanied the paper was titled One Giant Step for Kinesin. So that was <laughs> also in the community considered to be quite surprising. But yeah, and for, and for a sense of scale, the, the size of individual monomers of, of tubulin are, are, how, are how big? Yeah, so the, the individual monomers of tubulin are four nanometers, and so one a, um, alpha beta tubulin corresponds to that eight nanometer step size. Yeah. So they move along a protofilament along the uh, microtubule. So you might have thought it was a, a very kind of conservative shuffling step, but indeed it's making these very like exaggerated movements. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, so then what got you interested in neuroscience if you were uh, such a hardcore biophysicist? Even then I thought it would be a good thing to learn something new. I'd uh, gotten my feet wet in molecular biology, biochemistry, obviously lots of biophysics and optics, and I wanted to learn a new field of biology, and I felt, uh, you know, um, as they say in brain research, we won't be unemployed anytime soon. Lots to do, very little known, and, and, and I wanted to leverage some of my expertise in optics and uh, decided to work really at, in the, to use lasers essentially to interrogate individual synapses and neuronal micro compartments to really learn about synaptic plasticity at the level of individual synapses, to learn how synapses change with experience and to learn about how signaling works in this, this very complex uh, neuronal structure, local signaling, signaling related to a synapse. So you went and you did a, a postdoc at Bell Labs where you worked with David Tank. As you mentioned, you worked on a synaptic and dendritic function in the cortex. Uh, but before we get into the details of what you found, could you talk a little bit about what it was like being a young scientist at Bell at the time when there were so many interesting people and technologies being developed? Well, yeah, no, it was a really exciting place. It, it really was, especially, in, I mean, in hindsight, uh, quite a unique environment. There was Bell Labs, which was a giant uh, place. There were hundreds of people doing fundamental research and many thousands of people doing applied project-oriented research. So lots of interesting folks who knew about all kinds of technologies, material science, laser physics, and so on and so forth. And then there was the 
cocoon within this large research endeavor that was David Tang's Department of Biological Computation. And there were really, uh, the entire department, PIs, postdocs, and technicians, wasn't many more than 10 folks, probably three postdocs, four or five uh, five PIs and two or three techs and a secretary, an administrator. So very, very small, very intense, uh, very collaborative and very much driven by technology. There was a sense that uh, we were few in number. We uh, were a little strange. Uh, we didn't have much access to the kinds of resources that a biology department uh, did, but we would leverage technology to make advances in, in, in brain research. Can you remember something that you, uh, that you really wish you had at Bell, which seems sort of silly in retrospect? Well, you know, I mean, it, 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 we didn't even have a subscription to sell. Um, <laughs> so, for example, uh, later on, I made what I thought, again, in hindsight, was a very wise choice. I moved to Cold Spring Harbor, which was a, a, a really very, very a wonderful place, um, especially strong in basic molecular biology and so on, and I'd sort of noticed how in my three years at Bell, major kind of developments in molecular biology, uh, axon guidance was really hot at that time. You know, I really barely made a blip on my, my radar. So, so all kinds of things had sort of passed me by a bit. It was an interesting place in that respect. Very different, but very, very exciting. And People, there was this great sense of urgency to, to, to get stuff done and everyone, uh, lots of exciting projects. And, and really for me, very luckily, when I got there, Winfried had just figured out that 2-Photon is a wonderful tool for imaging deep and scattering tissue. You may not know, but when 2-Photon microscopy was developed, it wasn't really imagined to be a tool for imaging and scattering tissue. And that ultimately turned out to be the killer app for two-photon laser scanning microscopy. And Winfried really had figured that out, not just that it worked, but why it worked in the few months uh, before my arrival. So by the time I get got there, it was sort of like being a kid in a candy store because anything you looked at in a brain slice or later in the intact brain really hadn't been seen before, not at least at this clarity, right? So yeah. looking at the dynamics of individual synapses, the uh, dynamics of uh, dendrites and so on and so forth became sort of an obvious place to make advances. So what did people think 2-Photon was going to be useful for? If you look at the initial paper and uh, patent, there were, there were a few applications that were advanced. Some of them are really quite dated. One of them that they really highlighted was that now they could use... UV excited indicators in laser scanning microscopy, right? Confocals, uh, con commercial confocals had been around, and there are these wonderful uh, UV excitable dyes like Indo and Fura that people wanted to use in confocals, but there were no UV laser light sources, single mode UV light sources. And so to Photon opened up that window. Of course, then orange green BAPTA and, and all these kinds of calcium green came around and made that unnecessary. Uh, the other, of course, cool application that they correctly predict, predicted is to doing photochemistry in femtoliter volumes. And that's something that multi-photon excitation does, does in a unique manner. So you can actually do photoconversion 
of a caged molecule or uncaged molecule in sub-micrometer or sub-femtoliter volumes. And that's something that people have, and including my lab, have, have very much exploited uh, in subsequent years. But I think really 90% of two-photon microscopes are really used for essentially doing high-resolution fluorescence microscopy in scattering tissue. And that really only became... That application only came online about five years or so after the initial invention description of two-photon microscopy. So as you mentioned, two-photon has really opened up opened up the whole set of measurements that weren't possible before. And while at Bell, uh, you published the first paper to measure in vivo dendritic calcium dynamics. So besides two-photon, what were the other technical advancements that uh, made this kind of measurement possible? The key then was, remember that most lasers, so the, the, the existing laser scanning microscopes, there was the BioRat and a couple of others. The BioRat was really sort of the f flagship, I think BioRat 1000 or something was a flag, flagship instrument. They're mostly inverted microscopes um, uh, used for immunohistochemistry, single neuron measurements, and so on and so forth. They were not very well suited for imaging intact animals. So the first thing we had to do is build a microscope that well suited for not just putting a rat under it, but also the associated uh, electrophysiological apparatus. Back then, we labeled uh, individual neurons through sharp electrodes, a whole cell electrode. So there had to be recording apparatus, you know, uh, anesthesia apparatus, and so on and so forth. You had to have space. And so custom microscope completely dedicated many uh, de dedicated to in vivo microscopy whole animal microscopy and that's something that many people have now and you can buy from places like Sutter and Tholabs and others and and that's something that we really thought about a lot back then now uh, the other was you know window surgeries stuff like that again relatively routine right now but uh, back then uh, not for small animals, not de rigueur. We had to kind of invent this. Luckily, there was some expertise. Actually, David Kleinfeld had been doing voltage-sensitive dye imaging in rats, and so I learned a lot from him. And there was, there was some expertise there by labs, but there were a lot of little inventions that uh, we had to make that, uh, we, you know, actually in a round that where we're continuing to invent that um, that whole business about how to get access to the brain just continues to improve. What did this new technique teach us about calcium signaling in the dendrite? We could now look at calcium dynamics in dendrites, and so that would uh, could tell us about how and to what extent action potentials backpropagate into the dendrites. One surprise was that. Although action potentials do backpropagate into dendrites of small neurons, they decrement very rapidly uh, with distance from the soma, the action potential amplitude. And that seems to be different for neurons of different sizes. So for larger neurons, like layer 5 neurons, the action potential propagates further into the dendrites. Another insight was that in large neurons, like in layer 5 neurons, these are the neurons that span most of the cortical layers, you can have electrically excitation in the tough branch Mm -hmm. These layer 5 neurons, they're very elongated. They have neurites in layer 1 and then basal dendrites around the soma. And these are separated about a millimeter, uh, kind of on the order of an electrotonic distance. And what we found is that you can see electrical excitation in these tough branches that is uncoupled from uh, membrane potential deflections in the soma. So these giant neurons can have multiple independent uh, electrical compartments that can or can be coupled or not. Yeah. 
So you have basic phenomenology of how dendrites work in vivo. That's the kind of stuff we did. So I, I remember when I first learned about spike timing dependent plasticity, I immediately imagined that it was something like this backpropagating action potential causing calcium influx in the dendrite that was mediating the postsynaptic component. But it, it seems likely now that for, for many synapses, that's not true. Is that is that fair? Well, you know, I, I haven't kept up with the latest, but it's not obviously consistent with with what we know about backpropagation of action potentials. Now, what you can imagine, of course, is that the electrical, the depolarization provided by synapses in dendrites could boost action potential propagation into uh, branches, into sele selectively into particular branches. This is a mechanism that has been demonstrated, at least in brain slices. So you could have sort of an associative mechanism that is electrical, not only through directly mediate through NMDA receptor opening, but also through, in addition, through potentiation of backpropagation of action potential. And all kinds of nonlinear things kind of have been demonstrated to operate in dendrites in vitro. I think the real question for the field going forward is which of these kind of mechanisms really operate in the intact brain? In addition to these sort of nonlinear responses that you've alluded to that have been demonstrated in vitro, you and your lab have done a number of studies which have ex examined the effects of plasticity at the level of individual spines, making use of two-photon uncaging of glutamate, for example, in order to stimulate individual spines. And to broadly summarize, your lab has shown that potentiating an individual spine can affect the plasticity of nearby spines along the same dendrite through the diffusion of uh, activated kinase molecules, for example. Right, um, And this would suggest that local stretches of dendrite might undergo a kind of coordinated plasticity. And if you combine it with those nonlinearities, it sets up an intriguing hypothesis that the brain might use the plasticity mechanisms you observed to wire up its inputs in a way to exploit these nonlinear responses. Right. But I think that you're exactly right. The question is, what extent do you think the brain uh, is doing this? Could you kind of summarize what your view is about the state of the evidence? You did a great job summarizing, I think, the state of knowledge on the possible learning rules. And I think Susumo Tonegawa's lab has, has reproduced many of these results. I think this goes hand in hand with elegant modeling work from Bartlett Mel's lab, for example, who has shown that if you have this situation that sort of semantically related inputs are placed on nearby, on dendrites, you could actually potentiate the computational power of individual neurons. Okay, so neuron will become many integrated and fire neurons if you have this sort of clustered input. And I think it's it's very intriguing, but I think at the experimentally we just know very little. We know very little about how synapses that carry particular kinds of information to what extent they're placed nearby to each other on dendrites that could fire the dendrite through nonlinear interactions. In our work with Chris Harvey and Ryohei Asura and others, we've shown that there's a plausible mechanism, okay, of how to potentiate synapses, to nearby synapses together that carry similar messages, but to what extent that really actually has a bearing on computation in the intact brain, we really do not know. And I think Imaging approaches might very well provide the answer eventually if we can look at essentially the receptive fields of nearby inputs along individual dendritic branches in vivo. We've done this a little bit in the context of orientation selectivity in the visual cortex in our 
uh, GCAM6 paper last year, which was kind of a toy example, and we didn't see much clustering, but of course, orientation selectivity is probably not where it's at, right? Even in the visual system, when we'll have to look at much more detailed kind of aspects of receptive field structure, and we haven't done that yet. The intuition that orientation selectivity shouldn't make use of this mechanism. Where does that intuition come from? With orientation selectivity, we didn't find much. Similarly, there was a paper, a very nice paper from Arthur Connors' lab, not quite with single synapse resolution, but they also found in, in the visual cortex that even though there may be a bias of the overall orientation of the input to a neuron, that synaptic domains that are tuned one way can are as likely to be near synaptic domains that are tuned in, uh, any other way. Mm-hmm. So salt and pepper intermingled. So it's been kind of a null result in that respect, but I would not be surprised if, if one looked at, at sort of more detailed receptive field, on-off subfield, stuff like that, that uh, something might emerge. And I'm sure people are doing this as we speak. So in 2002, your lab published a paper where you used long-term imaging of individual pyramidal neurons in adult mouse cortex to show that sensory experience drives the formation and elimination of individual synapses as measured by observing spines growing and shrinking. So this was, the, I think, the first such observation of experience-dependent change at the level of individual synapses in the mammalian brain. Is that fair? I think so, yeah. Very importantly, by the way, Yes, we, we measured spines appear and disappear, but we also did retrospective electron microscopy. And I don't think I need to convince you that that's an important step in showing that you're actually looking at elimination and formation of synapses. Indeed, I reference your paper every time ever, uh, someone challenges whether Do that's that. spines. <laughs> <laughs> Going into this experiment, though, it really, I mean, it was the first time someone had looked at how the structure of a neuron uh, was changing in a mammalian brain over a long time scale. So what were some of the range of results that you might have imagined? And how did that compare to what you what you actually found? Well, you know, this is an interesting question. I came into this and this is something that is an interesting example on how prior experience can sort of bias your outlook. I was very surprised by turnover of synapses, because I had really been around folks that took LTP very seriously, uh, the kind of LTP that you induce over uh, 1, 5, 10, up to 30 minutes that was studied very elegantly by, for example, my colleague uh, Roberto Malino at Cold Spring Harbor at that time. So I was sort of very much biased towards the view that changes in network architecture is mainly achieved through the modification of existing synapses. And by the way, to this day, we don't have a good idea to what extent circuit plasticity is, is due to changes in existing synapses versus growth and elimination or synapse formation and elimination. Or even, I would say, for many LTP-type phenomenon, the extent to which the growth of individual synapses is contributing or not contributing to that potentiation, given that... Well, growth, growth, you mean, you mean enlargement. Yeah, or, or, or the formation of new synapses. Yeah, that, that's, that's exactly right. Well, you know, in the brain slice experiments that we had done earlier and also Tobias Bernard for it appeared that there was a temporal uncoupling. And, and actually, there was also work from Aplesia, of course, classic right. work from Eric Kandelslav. There was a temporal uncoupling between induction of long-term potentiation and subsequent growth of new structures. And in the glutamate uncaging experiments, it's absolutely clear that you can, in fact, potentiate the strength of 
existing synapses associated with actually spine enlargement right. without growth of new synapses. So I think it's, it's plausible that both of these mechanisms, and, and likely that both of these mechanisms operate in parallel, but how they kind of uh, divide up uh, over different timescales, different kinds of plasticity, and which one really dominates, we really don't know. The problem is that, you know, the way people would classically approach this is to do a molecular perturbation that affects one and not the other. And I, I have the feeling that most of the kinds of uh, molecules that are key mediators of plasticity would affect both of these processes. So there's a lot of work to be done there. And, and there was a large literature, of course, that synapse formation elimination happens during development and that circuits stabilize. And that is, in fact, true, but there is a substantial level of turnover even during adulthood. That's remarkable. And the other remarkable thing is, when I thought about it a little bit more deeply later, I felt what is also remarkable is the tremendous stability one can see in these tiny structures. You can find synapses, actually perhaps a majority under kind of baseline conditions, that persist for the entire lifetime of an adult mouse and you you're talking about structures on the psd is only about 100 200 maybe 300 nanometers across consisting of maybe a dozen copies of many different kinds of molecules and molecules that in addition we know to turn over over time scales of hours so there's a biophysical mystery right there how do you keep the structure of that size stable over time scales of days weeks and even years using unstable components yeah finally i'd just like to give you a chance to give us a preview of what you plan to talk about when you come to stanford now, when i moved to janelia i shrunk my laboratory by almost you know certainly more than a factor of two and decided to focus on work related to cortical circuits and that's what i'll be telling you guys about when i get there so you know what we're interested in is really how the neocortex, the largest part of the mammalian brain, processes information, how at the level of circuits. So our approach is very simple. We try to record from the relevant neurons cell types within well-mapped circuits in the neocortex during behavior. We, we try to figure out what the trains of action potentials could tell the rest of the brain about the behavior, how they might drive behavior, and then we try to test these hypotheses by manipulating activity in, in subtle ways to bias behavior one way or the other. So it's really circuit analysis and information processing circuits in the context of uh, behavior. I'd also say you continue to develop innovative technology to, to apply to exactly those questions. Just as a teaser for people, are you going to talk about your neuron paper in which you built a system to systematically inactivate cortex across the sort of the whole of cortex? Yeah, I'll mention that briefly. I, I tend to, I have this habit that in seminars, I tend to talk mostly about unpublished work. It's sort of an emotional thing. I find it is very difficult for me to get up in the morning to talk about stuff that's sort of nailed and in the can. Mm -hmm. But that's that's actually an experiment I like very much, and I will, I will certainly I will present some of the take-home messages and follow-up work on that. Okay, excellent. And then in closing, we have a series of uh, shorter answer questions. So if you could go back in time and speak to yourself personally as a graduate student, what advice did you need to hear when you were a graduate student? Well, as a graduate student, I think it's the best time 
to really have a big impact on science. Okay, you have very little, very few worries. If you're in a place like Stanford, you have exciting colleagues, especially your other, your, your, your kind of fellow students, an incredible resource. Take advantage of that and do important science. Take risks. Try to identify a thesis project that corresponds to a big question and do it. Can you remember what you think your first experiment ever was? Just whatever the first thing that pops into your mind. Oh, my goodness. You know, I was more sort of theoretically minded till I spent about a year at Berkeley. My senior year in college, I actually spent at Berkeley, worked in a, with a guy named Alex Zettel. And we worked on, well, we tried to make material, tried to introduce defects in, into materials. And so we tried to essentially heat tiny filaments of niobium trisolenoid in very uh, defined locations. And I was new to experimental science. And I took a big thundergraph generator and tried to induce defects with discharges along this whisker of conductor and obviously completely pulverized the thing. <laughs> I first failed experiments. <laughs> But it pulverized it in an exciting manner, I'm imagining. In an exciting manner, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Nothing left, yeah. <laughs> is there anything that you'd like to do or try to do when you come to Stanford in the Bay Area? Stanford is, you know, in many ways a, a mecca for the kind of science that I'm doing. So I think the most exciting thing is to really get up to speed to what people are doing and getting a whiff of exciting science there. That's really my main focus. I would have loved to go on hiking, but we actually went to Yosemite during the summer, so I got my fix. Great. Well, thanks for speaking with us today. All right, Forrest. Take care. And thank you all for listening. We'll hope you join us next week when our guest will be Kelsey Martin, Chair and Professor of Biological Chemistry and Professor of Psychiatry at the University of California, Los Angeles. She's awesome. Yeah, she is. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Erica Senior, Mark Padalina, and myself. For more information about Neurotalk and Neurite West, please visit our website at www.neuritewest.org.